And you think, well, that's not fair. I mean, if the boss only knew that you know, she was stealing from the company or that she took extra breaks and you know, those sicky days were actually holidays, oh, well, pff, that, she should be fired, not promoted. I should be promoted. You ever felt something like that? Or, or perhaps, you know, be it relationally. You know, you, you, you're trying to be kind to your parents, even though that can be difficult at points. And you've got a sibling who's just a black sheep. I mean, you're, you're the one there on Mother's Day with the cards and the flowers. And your brother doesn't even bother ringing your mom, let alone like showing up. And then what does your mom do? She has a whinge about you. I mean, is that fair? Oh. I mean, hello. And so on, and, and, and it goes on and on, right? Well, the story we come to today is pretty clear that though individuals may get away with murder, there's a day of reckoning coming. It actually matters. It actually matters how we live our lives in obedience to the Lord. It's not just, ah, whatever, take it or leave it, neither here nor there. In fact, the Bible's really clear that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. So one day we're all going to stand before God. There is a day of reckoning coming. Are you ready for that? And you know what? All the wrongs will be judged. All the things that we feel that that wasn't fair will be dealt with. God is the judge. And a day of reckoning is coming. That's what we get to see in this passage today with these two guys who are, are absolute ratbags. Um, they, they get judged. Well, at least there's a picture of it. And next week, they'll get to see they get judged. But I, I, I pray, you know, you know what's beautiful about these passages, and, and you'll get to see a bit of this as well when we go through it, is it shapes, it shapes the way you view God, right? And what I mean by that is um, th- this book from Genesis to Revelation is God-breathed, right? This, this book is, we learn about the character of God. We can't just base our lives on John 3.16, and then base our entire view of God on John 3.16. Though that's a lovely passage. But we see in this, in this book that it was the will of the Lord to bring these two guys down. By the way, for God so loved the world. Right? So how do you reconcile those things? So, so that's what I pray is that your, your view of God is enlarged. I, and and you, you get to a picture of of God and his judgment and his wrath. Yes, his grace, but you see, that we have to balance these things. So it's, I'm excited to, to unpack it as we think about the day of reckoning. So why don't we go to the Lord and pray, and then we'll, we'll get right into it. Father, we, we come before you this morning, uh, Lord, as needy sinners, as people, um, even myself, Lord, um, my own thoughts and my own heart is, is, is distracted and um, Lord, physically, I, I feel tired, um, uh, even with my just croaky voice. Uh, we pray that that would fade, and your word, Lord, would, would pierce our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. So, 
As Dan was saying, there's a lot of stories, not only just in the Bible, but I mean, all throughout literature, right, where you have the good son and the bad son, right, the, uh, the tortoise and the hare or whatever, you know, you've, you've got sort of this contrast going on. That's what's happening when we pick up in 1 Samuel. There's, there's already been a contrast, if you remember last week, between humble Hannah, right, and prideful Paniah. Do you remember that? And there's this song that happens about it. This comparison, this contrast, it, it actually carries on with Samuel and Eli's sons. The Lord blesses Hannah's family and judges Eli's family. Which is ironic when you think about last week, because do you remember what he accused her of? Oh, you're a drunken woman, right? And there's these two things going on, and, and we know the rest of the story. We can skip to the next chapter and, and say, wow, look at this, actually. The, the Lord is going to bless her lineage and, and actually judge Eli's lineage. Well, look at the contrast here. On, on the one hand, the boy Samuel is ministering before the Lord, it says. He's growing in stature and in favor with God. But on the other hand, these wicked dudes enter into the story. In other words, the narrative is flowing along quite nicely. First, we have Hannah, and her prayer is answered, and then she sings this song, right? It's explaining how this thing happened, how that event occurred, and then in response, how she sings this song. But then, all of a sudden, in verse 12, the story gets interrupted. It's like if you imagine someone trying to sit down with you, right? Or call you up. And they're talking with you over the phone, or they're sitting down having a coffee with you, and they're trying to explain how this significant event happened in their life. Maybe it's, you know, something special. Maybe it's something bad, whatever. And they say, and this thing happened, and then this happened, and then, and then, and then. And then, and then, you're like, okay, okay, you're tracking along. But all of a sudden, out of nowhere, maybe they're not that animated, but, you know, I would be. But, you know, whatever it might be, right, guess what? That's sort of, you get what I'm saying? That, that's what's happening here. In verse 11, that's what the author is doing. And then, then, and then, and then, and then, and then, Samuel's ministering before the Lord, but here, verse 12, but here, the sons of Eli, let's talk about these blokes for a second. They were worthless fellows. Can you hear the contrast going on between Samuel and Eli's sons? Samuel was faithful, whereas these boys were Worthless, sons of Belial. Literally, that's what it is in Hebrew, sons of Belial. Belial was this demonic figure. So does that mean that, wait, hold on, that, that are they called sons of Belial because this demonic demon had intimate relations with their mother? No. They're given this title because of the way that they behaved. You understand? 
It was the, it's what marked out their life. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Peacemaking, gospel peacemaking, marks out someone who is God's child because they're imaging the character of their father. Are you with me? These two blokes, Hophni and Phinehas, as we come here to, to Samuel, are imaging the character of a demon. They are sons of Belial. Well, how so? I mean, what a thing to say. Well, whenever the people came to worship the Lord at Shiloh and to offer sacrifices, they would intervene and grab the best barbecue meat for themselves. You're like, okay, well, that's not that big of a deal. Well, I mean, I like to, I do that on Christmas. I get the best, you know, best looking sausage for myself. I take a little fork and I, I take that. I'll make sure that my, that my uncle gets it because he'll grab it. So I grab it before he does, <laughs> right? No, 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 listen. The book of Leviticus tells us that in these offerings, these are, these are not just, you know, Christmas barbecues, but in these offerings, the fat was to, supposed to be burned first as an offering pleasing to the Lord. But before that could ever happen, Eli's sons would send one of their mates, one of their henchmen, really, with this fork in a hand, and what would they do? They would snap up the best meat for themselves. Now, now God's law permitted them, allowed them to have a portion. They were the priests, right? So they, they were allowed to actually have a portion of the meat, but that's not what's going on here. They are using sacrifices made to the Lord for their own greed and leisure. Do you see the problem there? These are sacrifices supposed to be given to God as an offering, and they're using it for their own greed, for their own leisure, to fatten themselves. And to make matters worse, whenever this happened... You know, there at Shiloh, and an ordinary Israelite would say, oh, hold on a tick. Um, guys, this doesn't seem right. I, I mean, I, I know I'm not a, a priest like you, but I, I, I'm pretty sure that the fat's supposed to be burned first, right? And how would they respond, these priests? Well, they'd demand the meat. And then if that didn't work, they'd, say, they'd act like a thug. They'd say, Give it up or else. They were bullying God's people and taking from them. Now, not to mention, not to mention, they also used their mantle of leadership to seduce women and to sleep with them. Not in their homes, which would be bad, but right there at the entrance of the tabernacle. Imagine, here are these women coming to the special place where the Israelites entered God's holy presence. I mean, goodness gracious, if you ever read the book of Leviticus, you see how serious God is about this. That here are these women coming who should have been treated with the utmost purity, right? This is God's temple. And instead, they're preyed upon and used as prostitutes. Unbelievable. You know, friends, 
Sadly, this is not a new phenomenon, is it? There are far too many spiritual leaders out there who grow rich off the sacrificial gifts of God's people. I mean, how often do we hear about pastors, in quotation pastors, who've grown rich as they fleece God's flock and they're taking advantage of women within their own congregations, within their own churches. But listen, they may seem like they're getting away with it, but a day of reckoning is coming. Eli, being the derelict father that he is, may have turned a blind eye to his boy's sin, but God saw it. Look at verse 17. Notice verse 17. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. You see, understand? These gluttonous, greedy guys with a total disregard for God's law, it's not a light matter. It's not like God's not turning a blind eye to it. A day of reckoning is coming. So says Paul, listen, friend, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. You coddle your sin, it's going to kill you eventually. Understand? It's kind of like, I've used this illustration before, but in the Lord of the Rings, you have Bilbo Baggins, right? And so on and so forth. But you've got Schmeagel, who's used to be, uh, he's completely transformed because of his obsession with the ring. And, and at the very end, again, spoil alert, it's 20 years old, so where have you been? But at, at, at the very end, after he bites off Frodo's finger, and he, he's, he's so obsessed and he holds the ring up, and you know, it falls into the fire. But, but what is he doing? What is he doing? Is he, well, most logical people would go, ah, right, and scream because they're, but what, he, he takes the ring off and he just holds it tight to his chest. He just holds it, holds it. Oh, I love this ring. You, dude, you're, you're like, you're on your way to the fire, right? I mean, the, any, but, but he's lost it. The ring has completely consumed him. Even when he hits the lava, he's trying to hold the ring up just so he can look at it one less. It's, our sin's the same way, you see? I know we live in an obsessed culture that tolerates sin, but God doesn't turn a blind eye to it, my friend. You'll be, that, that's a great depiction of what sin is like. You hold on to that, it'll drag you down to hell. But turn from your sin. God doesn't look at it lightly. You can, you can turn from your sin. You don't have to be dragged down. You can turn from that and turn to Christ. And you'll be freed from that. You'll be freed from loving yourself. Freed from loving your sin. Christ, by his spirit, will enable you to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions, you see. Now, what a contrast we have in the following verse. So, man, I hope I helped paint a picture for you there of these guys. Not good guys at all. But then in verse 18, it just like flips. Notice verse 18. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him 
a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. It's, it, what, you see the contrast there? You've got these two horrible guys, and now you've got this little boy shining in the darkness. And as I, I really like here, it's, it's a touching note that even though Samuel was gone from the household in Ramah, he was still very much in his mother's heart. It, she was concerned that her son was ministering before the Lord, obeying the Lord. You know, I think there's a principle there, though it's not explicit in the text, the importance of our parents that we have to care for the spiritual well-beings of our kids. F.B. Meyer writes this. He says, Mothers still make garments for their children, not on the loom or with their busy needles merely, but by their holy and ennobling characters displayed from day to day before young and quickly observant eyes, by their words and conversation, and by the habits of their daily devotion. Isn't that great? There's nothing more important. Uh, motherhood could, uh, honestly, in my opinion, is, is the highest calling. And, and I love how he says there, F.B. Meyer writes, right, by, by their dis- displayed from day to day before young and quickly observant eyes. You know, more is caught than taught. And, and your kids are watching the way that you respond. Your kids are watching the way that you fight sin or don't fight sin. And I think that's, honestly, friends, there's a lot could be said about this, but parenting is, it is a wonderful opportunity to point young hearts to Christ every day. Now, let's catch our breath there for a second because that's a lovely part of the story. But what about, what about these two guys? What about Ophni and Phineas? And what's, someone's got to say something, right? You know, that when I talked about earlier, you know, the, the person that you feel like it's, they're cheating at work. I mean, this is way, probably way worse than someone, what I described earlier. I mean, this is, this is, this is an offense. This is blasphemous, right? So someone's got to say something. Well, their dad does. In verse 22, if you come there. Now, Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is not good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. Fascinating verse here if you're following along. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? So Eli, I, Eli chastises his sons. I mean, we can be hard on Eli, but he does rebuke them. And they would, have been lo- they would have been wise to listen to their dad's rebuke. But verse 25 says that they would not listen to the voice of their father. You see that? Why not? Don't miss the end of verse 25. For it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Literally, it pleased God to kill them. Let that sit with your John 3.16 theology for a second. It hafates 
in Hebrew, pleased God. Same word, by the way, in Isaiah 53. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. It pleased God. Hafetz, pleased God. I, rem- I, I, I learned hafetz because of hobbits. You have to learn certain way. When you learn language, you have to, and hobbits are happy, right? But they had pleasure. That's what it says. So hafetz in Hebrew is pleasure. It's delighting in. It's, it pleased Yahweh, the Lord, to kill them. Unbelievable. So are they responsible then for not listening? Absolutely. Is God still sovereign over them not listening? Absolutely. They're similar to Pharaoh. You might remember when Moses goes to Pharaoh, the record makes clear, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. But it also says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. You picture the posture of these two boys living in total apostasy, and their dad comes to them and says, guys, boys, my sons, what are you doing? The report I hear is terrible. And they just kind of shrug it off. Yeah, whatever. Can't be bothered with you, dad. Bugger off. I don't care. Because it was the will of the Lord to bring them down. Now, what should have happened here? Well, what Eli should have done is said, okay, I'm not all bark and no bite. You're done. He should have done the equivalent of church discipline. He should have actually said, no, 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 I'm removing you from this position now. Like, you're, you're fired. You're done. You're disqualified. Not just barked at them. I've said this before. It drives me insane when churches can get really tough guy up front and bark about sin and do nothing about it. What needs to happen, any church that's, and I'll say this as clearly, I will say this without flinching, I'll stand behind this and I will look into the camera and everyone that's listening, any church that doesn't practice church discipline is not worth its salt. Any church that does not practice church discipline is not worth its salt. You can't just bark about sin and do nothing about it. This is why we're we're wanting to have church membership. Do you understand? This is why we're trying to move towards these things. Jesus says, tell it to the church. The Lord cares about the holiness and purity of his church. We're not just going to allow God's name to be rubbed in the mud because we're going to love people. That is redefining what love is. No, no, no. The Bible is clear on these issues. And part of what the problem is here is this is he's all bark and he's no bite. But then when you think, okay, well, great, what's going to happen now, right? Well, out of nowhere, this no name shows up, <laughs> right? Here, here's like the, the, the top dogs. And then this guy comes out of left field. This man of God, we don't know where he, we don't know where he came from. We don't know his name. We don't know what kind of credentials he had. I think that's kind of the point, by the way. The, the, right? The humble come to, re, to rebuke those on top. And, and what does he do? 
Well, he's a very solemn sermon to give, doesn't he, in verse 27. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal, and look at these questions, right? Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Well, yeah, he did. Did I not choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear the ephod before me? Yep. I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then did you scorn my sacrifices, my offerings, that I am commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me? What a what. Boy, I hope, parents, you never hear that. You honor your kids more than God. You love your kids more than God and His glory. Why, why did you honor your sons more than me? By fattening yourselves on the choicest part of every part pe- people of Israel. It's interesting too, and I don't want to give it away, but next week, Eli himself in the next ch- portion is actually going to die. He says he's a very fat man. And, and part of that is, I mean, he's honoring himself. Yeah, yeah, sure, he can bark at his sons, but yeah, you know what? Boys, if you can get me a T-bone, that'd be great as well. I can actually like complain because you know I'm going to get some byproducts from this as well. Therefore, the Lord, verse 30, the God of Israel declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. That, you could, that's worth underlining in your Bible. Those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold the days, and, and, and here we go. Now, now we've got what's going to happen, right? He's, he's saying, I'm going to actually cut off your strength, your power and your influence. Verse 31, behold, the days are coming when I will cut off, the, it's literally cut off your arm there. I, I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so there will not be an old man in your house. What he's saying, he said, I'm going to cut off your strength. I'm going to cu- I, I, you're not going to live long. Your family's not going to dwell long. They're going to die young. Then in distress, you will look with envious eyes on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall, be, shall die by the sword. And this shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be assigned to you. Both of them will die on the same day. And there's a fascinating verse here. If you're in a growth group, you're going to get to talk about this. But in verse, 30, verse 35, I wonder who you think this is talking about. Verse 35 And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Man, we could just sort of just pass through that, but that is gold. You you really want to sit on that one, and if you're in a growth group, you're going to have a chance to this week. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. 
So we've got this contrast happening here between the wicked boys, wicked sons, and the good son. But the good son, as Dan mentioned earlier, is still very young. It's, it's, it's interesting that Hophni and Phinehas did not know the Lord. Did you see that there? If you go back to verse 12. But Samuel, in a sense, didn't know the Lord either, actually. It's really interesting. Look, look here at chapter 3. Now the boy Samuel was ministering as the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had become had grown dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am. And Eli ran and said, uh, and he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call you, lie down. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called Samuel again. And Samuel said, arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call you, my son, lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. And the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am. Uh, it's literally there. Behold, I am. It's, a, it's like a, a way that you would, um, a servant would, ad, would address a master, right? And he says, here I am, you called me. Now, there's this interesting scene going on here. Can you see it between, you've got Eli and then his apprentice, and you've got this judgment that just happened, or at least this pronouncement from the prophet, and then you see God shift and now, instead of dealing with Eli, he's dealing with his apprentice. And it's this fascinating bit here where he goes, Yo, you know, he hears, Samuel, Samuel. He thinks, oh, well, runs in. Uh, yeah, Eli, whoa, whoa, what, what? You called me. I didn't call you. Go lay down. Okay. Samuel, Samuel, here I am. You called. Dude, you woke me up the second time. I didn't call you. Go lay down. And then it dawns on Eli, ah, you know what? It's the Lord who's calling you. So when you hear that again, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And then it's a fascinating thing what God says. Notice here. Verse 11, then the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day, I will fill against Eli all that I've spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Now, that's, that's you know, if, if, if you're a prophet and you're going to get a message, like you you probably don't want to have to deliver that on the guy that's training you up, right? So the next morning, Eli goes, oh, so was it, was it the Lord? Yep, it was. What'd he tell you? You better tell me what he said. Hit me with it. All right. <laughs> I got some good news and some bad news, <clears throat> right? Bad news is, well, boom. But you see the day of reckoning is, is coming. You see the consistency there, right? It, it's not like the Lord is just an empty threat. 
to these boys. He's, he's not like the parent who says, all right, I'm going to be leaving you now. I'm going to be, and the kid knows you're not, you're not going to leave them there at Woolies. All right, so you're just, you're just lessening your authority. And, and you, God has called you to be an authority in your kid's life. So take that authority, by the way. Love your kid, point them to Christ, but be the authority in their life. So, you, so it's not just like an empty threat. You're grounded for a month. I'm going to leave you in Woolies. No, no, no. It's going to happen. I told you it was going to happen. Now I'm going to speak to your apprentice. He's going to remind you it's going to happen. And next week we're going to see that's exactly what happened. But I want to come back to this. As we close here, I want to come back to this text in chapter 2 because you can't help living in the day that we do post-Old Testament, living in the New Testament, verse 25, to immediately think, well, thank you, Lord, for Jesus, right? In verse 25, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, which that's everyone in this room, who can intercede for him? Christ is our mediator. Christ is David's greater son. Christ lived a life of obedience. Yet, when he was on the cross, God treated him as if he was a sinner. He executed Jesus as if he lived your life so he could treat you as if you lived his. He made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I hope you're already seeing bits and pieces again here. This is why we have this theme of you're getting a kingdom that's coming but the kingdom finally, it, it comes in the Lord Jesus Christ. And one day will be an everlasting kingdom when he returns. I said this last week. In the kingdom. The way to get in the kingdom is turning from your sin, turning from trusting in yourself, not coddling your sin, like I said. How do you know you're a citizen of the kingdom too, by the way? It's not coddling your sin. It's turning from your sin. King is coming. Are you ready? Let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you for your kindness to us. And we pray now that as we approach you and reflect upon the sacrifice of your son, Lord, as he lived a life that we should have and died in our place, was a real death where his body was broken, his blood was spilled. And Lord, we pray that for those of us here that are in your kingdom, we thank you that you've transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved son. We pray that we'd celebrate that now as we break bread. In Christ's name, amen. So if you're here, friend, and if, 